0: Welcome to Philosophy and Faith, where our goal is to help you navigate your intellectual and spiritual journey, especially in regards to topics like God, faith and doubt, meaning and purpose, and more. I'm Nathan
1: Beeson. And I'm Daniel Jepson. And together we discuss the big questions that humans have wrestled with for thousands of years. We're glad you can join us. Hey, good morning. Good morning.
0: How are you doing? Doing well. (laughs) Excited to be talking about beauty today.
1: This is one that I love to talk about, but it's very difficult to talk about. How come? Beauty tends to go beyond our rational ability to communicate the concepts about it. It's not that it's irrational, but it goes beyond rationality. And so our words, of course, are based on rational concepts. They don't always do justice to the ideas that we're talking about when we talk about beauty. Huh?
0: Well, I'm excited for you to unpack that a little bit more as we go. So why are we talking about beauty then, just to kind of start because us off? Because it's beautiful, man. Yeah, that's true.
1: Uh, the idea of beauty has, for me at least, become the central part of who I am and what I think about in my religious life. So I think when I was young, say in my teens and 20s, I don't know if I thought about beauty that much. I mean, everyone appreciates beauty, but mm-hmm. I didn't really think about it a whole lot. And I think I tended to interact with God more on a conceptual or, or an intellectual level. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that as I've gotten older, the idea of beauty, of understanding this world, beauty in a certain way, has become really foundational to who I am as a person, but also my relationship with God.
0: Wow. Do you, do you appreciate art more and enjoy that now as you've gotten older? Oh, yeah.
1: A hundred times more.
0: Wow. What does that look like, just out of curiosity?
1: Well, it looks like I go to museums a lot more. I have a whole shelf or two full of art books. I also, of course, appreciate natural beauty even more than I did as a as a child or a teen.
0: Yeah, I remember one time a couple years walking with you, and you pointing out one of the trees on the path, and you were like, "Oh, this is that kind of tree," and you were like, "These are the only places. This is the only place where these are in Franklin that you're aware of." And I was like, "Oh, that's so interesting." You just appreciated the the tree. You knew what kind it was, and (laughs) I feel like hanging out with you has helped me appreciate natural beauty as well more just in trees and animals and that
1: kind of thing well that makes me happy yeah yeah
0: actually i don't know if i've shared that with you before but i do feel like that's a sincere like i notice it a lot more just by spending time with you
1: that makes me very happy yeah
0: and also thank you for the nice christmas gift of the van gogh book oh yeah it's enjoyable to look through and see Mm. his work
1: yeah (laughs) and i will say for some reason van gogh is my favorite a visual artist and I'm not sure why I can't really put it into words I have some ideas I'll, maybe we'll talk about that later but, but since
0: we're here can I just ask like why yeah you said you can't put it in words but here, here well I'm here not we sure I can
1: put it in, into <laughs> words one of the things that we'll talk about today is that art has a way of expressing the beauty of the form or the essence of something in a way that's unique to human art And I think some people, some artists, are able to do that in a very unique way. And to me, at least, Van Gogh is that person. Other people, other artists as well. But for me, he does that. You don't look at his art and you say, oh, that is a beautiful and perfect representation of that field or that countryside or that person. To me, at least, I see the essence of that thing, even though from a technical point of view, it didn't look exactly like that.
0: Yeah. It's not realism.
1: No. And realism is great, but we have cameras for that. Yeah. When I look at art, at least for me at this stage of my life, I want to see the essence of something.
0: Okay, cool. So beauty for today.
1: Yeah. Well, let me give you an overview of aesthetics very briefly. A lot of philosophers don't really delve into this at all, but I think the first one that I know of is Plato. So I've been reading against some of the pre-Socratic philosophers and I I have yet to see any of them tackle the idea of beauty or aesthetics or art. But Plato does. And then right after Plato, his student Aristotle really develops the full system of aesthetics. Both of them viewed beauty as something that points beyond itself. Now, the big difference between Plato and Aristotle is that Plato diminished the value of human art. In his mindset, art was unvaluable. Why? Well, I have to remember, and I'm just gonna delve into this briefly because we should devote several episodes to Plato's thought. It was so influential, not only in philosophy, but in the Christian worldview and thinking. But in Plato's mindset, there are two realms, as it were. There is this spiritual slash intellectual world, and then there's this physical world that you and I exist in right now. And the physical, spiritual world is composed primarily of what's called forms or ideas. And the best way to think about this is imagine that you were going to create a horse out of, say, clay or marble, something like that, right? So what do you have there? You have, according to Plato, primarily two things. You have the form or the idea of the horse in your mind, and then you have the material that you're working with. And those two things combined create then that statue or that figurine of a horse, right? And so his main point was that the forms, the ideas of things were much more important than the physical expressions of those things. The form of hoarseness in your mind is a million times more important than what you're actually able to produce. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But basically, the idea is that each individual representation is going to be defective because the material you're working with is not fully pliant, is not fully able to work with that form to create that.
0: I like that, the the form of hoarseness in your mind. So you've you've got these ideals, yes, and then you've got the ideal horse, and then every real material horse is some sort of imperfect representation of what the the perfect horse is ideal would be is that it
1: yes because the matter is not able to fully express that the idea of horses it has limitations
0: and that's with everything yes so that's with you've got a chair here and that is somehow a representation of the perfect ideal chair that only exists in our minds perhaps or in this other in this other realm in this other realm
1: he does not locate them in the human mind but they are in a separate realm actually okay now, the other reason that a physical horse is not as valuable as the idea of horseness is that the physical horse is going to die. So it uh-huh. comes and goes. It's a changeable thing, whereas the idea of hoarseness is eternal and unchangeable. That's so interesting.
0: But that makes sense why like he would devalue a painting or a sculpture or something like that, because if I, as a human, am going to be closer to that form than a sculpture of a human, like that's going to be a degree even farther away from what that main ideal would be.
1: That's exactly right, actually. Yeah. He devalued art because it was a representation of a representation. So if I'm looking at a horse and then drawing a picture of that or creating a statue based upon that horse that I see, that's another step removed from what's really important, the idea of horseness.
0: So Aristotle is his disciple, one of his disciples. right. And he had a different view on that.
1: He did. On one important thing, he agreed with Plato here. He agreed that any individual thing that we see here, whether it's a horse or a person or whatever, is this combination of a form or idea and matter. So you've got the form-matter distinction. He agreed with that. His difference, though, was that form or the idea as somehow inherent in that object. So it's not off existing in some other realm, it's within that, and that individual representation to say that horse is simply the way that, that has outworked as it combines with matter. I'm not saying that quite right, but that's the idea.
0: So if I draw a picture of a horse, that is, we'll say, good because in essence, it's trying to point at the form of the horse. So in and of itself, it, it has some value because it's trying to approach that form, even if
1: it doesn't improve. Yeah, very insightful, because that's exactly right. For him, human art is able to highlight the form, even at the expense of reality, because maybe what you're sculpting doesn't exactly look like that thing. Yeah. But you're creating this idealized sculpture or painting in order to bring out the beauty of that form. Mm. Now. Probably the philosopher that that has had the most influence in terms of aesthetics or beauty is going to be Thomas Aquinas.
0: Okay, he comes quite a bit later and from a different perspective.
1: Right. So Aquinas is going to come a long time later, about 16 centuries after Aristotle. Most of the centuries before then, Christian thought did not have access to most of the writings of Aristotle. So they had the writings of Plato, which dramatically influenced Christian thought and Christian theology but they did not have in that seminal period the first 10 centuries of christian thought they did not have broad access to the writings of aristotle
0: that's super interesting so that's a, another future episode i think as we'll get into the yeah. <laughs> the influence of platonism on christianity but so that was limited by archaeological discovery then
1: we'll go into the history of it but a lot of the manuscripts were lost in the western world they but they were preserved in some of the Arab lands and in the Eastern land, and then they were rediscovered. And that changed everything. So when you look at Augustine, who up to this point had been the most influential Christian theologian and Christian thinker.
0: At least in the West.
1: Yes, at least in the West, definitely. What you see is a man who was synthesizing Plato with Christian thought in the New Testament, or, or the Bible as a whole. When you get to Thomas, who's going to be in the 13th century, so in the 1200s. When you get to Thomas, what you find is this creative and fully worked out synthesis of Aristotle with biblical thought.
0: Okay, so just to kind of give us a little bit of a chronological framework here, when are these guys alive?
1: Plato is going to be dated about 425 B.C. to 348 B.C., so three or four centuries before Christ. And then Aristotle's actually his student, so subtract about 30 years from that. And then you've got Augustine, who's going to be the last part of the 4th century. It's about 350 to 430. And then you've got St. Thomas, who is right in the middle of the 13th century. So right in the 1200s.
0: Okay. So St. Thomas is picking up then on the writings, you said, of uh, Plato or Aristotle? Aristotle. Aristotle, Okay.
1: Now, let's talk about how Aquinas developed this. Okay, okay. First of all, he's going to give a definition, which is really not a definition, but it's as good as you're going to get. So he's going to define beauty as that which being seen pleases. Beauty is that which being seen pleases.
0: So he doesn't include music in that.
1: Well, I think being seen is broader. What he's trying to get across is that it brings you pleasure apart from its utility.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So if I'm enjoying a, a wonderful meal, part of that is simply because I'm hungry. I need food, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, if I'm really hungry, even a very simple meal, say toast and cereal, is really pleasurable, right? Yeah. But there are some things that I don't need, and yet I still find very, very beautiful. I don't need to see a sunset. I don't need to listen to Box mass in B minor, but I still find those things beautiful and pleasurable. They please me, even though they don't have a utility for me. Okay. So that's what he's trying to get across. When you experience something and it brings you great pleasure apart from your need, that's what he says beauty is.
0: That's a super interesting definition. Okay. So that which being seen pleases. Right. Apart from utility.
1: Yeah. And, of course, the obvious question is, all right, so it brings me pleasure. Why? What is it about that? And he would argue, and a lot of this is then going to be based on Aristotle. He would argue that there are primarily four things that please us when we see or experience a beautiful object. One is unity. One is proportion. One is harmony. And the last is the radiance of the form or the essence.
0: Great. Can you unpack each of those? Unity. What does he mean by that? So it brings us pleasure because it, rep- it shows or brings forth unity?
1: I think what he means is that all the pieces fit together in the right way. And it's very much related then to the idea of harmony. I have a little bit of trouble understanding the difference he makes between unity and harmony. But I believe it has this idea that unity shows how all these pieces fit together and harmony shows how they all fit together in this harmonious or beautiful way. And then proportion then would be something like no piece is too big or too small, but they're just right in there proportionate towards each other.
0: Okay. And then radiance of form.
1: Yeah. Before we get to that, maybe think of think of a beautiful face. All right. So we see a beautiful face, I there see is... one every morning when I look in the mirror. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, never mind about that. When I look at my wife and I see a beautiful (laughs) face, what do I see? I see a unity. All the parts fit together. Okay. Okay. And then there is a proportion. So if she had a nose that was eight inches long, that would be, in most people's mind, a mark against her beauty because of the proportion. And then there's this harmony. All the pieces fit together. If one ear was two inches higher than the other, when you look at someone's face, that's not going to be probably beautiful to you. So I think that's where he was going at with all of those.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I, c- I can definitely see that the the unity as a whole. The face looks right, and part of the way it looks right is that the, the pieces fit. To, even even though an eye is not an ear, which is not a nose, and which is not a mouth, those harmonize. There's a there's a distinctness, yet there's a unity. Yeah, in the way that they work together, and their proportions, their sizes, their distances that make us kind of in a split second judge, okay, that's a that's a beautiful face or that's not a beautiful
1: face. Yeah, I think so. Or think of a horse. It has those same qualifications, right? There is a, a unity to the horseness as a whole. There is this proportion and there's this harmony to the body of the horse. If you had a drawing or a statue of a horse where the neck was way too big or the legs were way too short. We call that a giraffe
0: or a pony. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> Or one eye was larger than the other or higher or lower than the other, we'd say, okay, that person uh, probably needs some work there in their, in their artistic ability.
0: So he's kind of giving a rubric to how, to how to determine if something is beautiful or not. But, it, I mean, thinking about it from the, the 21st century w- in which we have all kinds of, you know, expressionist art or you know, modern art, that this, those may not fit his necessities necessarily fit his criteria
1: no I don't think he'd be too pleased with some of the 20th century paintings, especially okay
0: but he is at least he's giving a framework which I think is helpful because even if somebody doesn't necessarily resonate with expressionist art or something like that if they see a well-painted picture or they see a landscape or they overlook something like the Grand Canyon or something I think that there is a a beauty that's intrinsic there based on its unity and proportion harmony.
1: Right. And then I think also the last one plays into that because sometimes this one can overshadow the others, but if it's strong enough, we still find it beautiful. And that would be the radiance of the form or the essence. And this one is really hard to describe. But again, in his mindset, when you look at any physical thing, what you are looking at is this combination of the matter, the material that it's made out of, whether it's wood or ivory or gold or marble or whatever, and then the form, the the idea in that person's mind, or as he would put it, in God's mind, about what that thing is and what that thing should look like. Mm-hmm. So that was the big shift between, say, Plato and Aristotle, and then you get into Christian theology. They still had, at this point at least, the idea that there were two realms, the realm of forms or ideas and the realm of matter, but the ideas and the forms were not just in this realm out somewhere that we can't experience and can't have access to, but rather they are actually in the mind of God.
0: Okay. That's, that's a really interesting shift.
1: Right. And but therefore, because of that, it gives this intrinsic nobility to these forms in a way gotcha. that, that we'll come back to. But so I talked about Van Gogh. if you look at Van Gogh just as an artist with his sense of proportion and harmony, uh, yeah, you're going to have a few strikes against him. But at the same time, he and some of the impressionists that came a little bit after him, I think do such a wonderful job of showing the form or the essence of something, at least to me, your mileage may vary, that I don't really care as much about those. Because here I'm seeing something I don't usually see anywhere else. I'm seeing someone who is able to express in physical ways the form and the goodness of this thing that they're looking at. Whether that's a person or a field or a mountain,
0: so your criteria isn't how well that thing corresponds to reality. Your criteria is exactly what they were getting after, which is, I don't want to just show this. I want to show the emotion, perhaps, or the the feel that this landscape or person should evoke.
1: Right. It was called impressionism, right? That was actually a label given to it by someone who wanted to denigrate the movement. I think better Impressionism should be called Expressionism because two things are happening here. One, I think for Van Gogh, at least, and some of the early Impressionists, sometimes he's called an Impressionist, sometimes not, they're trying to express what they see within them. Hmm. Now, I think for some of the later Impressionists, they're actually trying to express how they feel about them, which is very different. We call them both impressionists. Again, I think expressionism is a better word. But one is trying to express the beauty of the form or the idea of that thing and its meaning and value. And the other is much more subjective. This is how I feel about this. And I think that is the, the really big shift in art of the last 150 years or so. When I'm looking at Van Gogh, I'm seeing someone who's trying to express what's objectively there. Okay. When I look at some of the later ones, uh, for example, Monet, but especially the people who came in the 20th century, I'm seeing someone who's trying to express their own feelings about what they see. Okay. Now, it could be wrong. I'm not an art expert, but that's, that's how I view the shift in 20th century art, especially.
0: So you think that there's something just innately beautiful that Van Gogh's able to capture in showing, like, uh, I got some of his paintings in my head, but I don't remember what they're called. (laughs) But there's the one of the man who's sitting on the chair who's sorrowful. Yeah. It's very famous, or Starry Night or something, where he's trying to show the innate beauty of that particular. Let's take the man who's sitting on the chair who's sorrowful. I think that's one of the more popular. Like, he's trying to not just show kind of how he's perceiving that, but the innate feeling, impression of that scene. Right.
1: he is trying to express visually what grief is. Or when you see Starry Night, probably his most famous painting, and I won't quibble. To me, it's not necessarily my favorite out of his, but it's it's a great painting. Obviously, the stars were not that large. They did not swirl like that. Mm-hmm. but he is creating the scene where he is trying to get at the, the beauty of that beyond what a photograph or a hyper-realistic painting could do. Yeah. And coming back to Aquinas, I think Aquinas would be okay with that. I think I'm okay with that because I feel like there is some objective worth or beauty or value in what he's seen, and he's trying to convey that. There are some things that express the radiance of the form. Talk about natural beauty. Uh, shift back to that for a minute instead of art. I believe when we look at the natural world, we see often unity and proportion and harmony. But even more than that, we see the radiance of something beyond itself. Maybe not a form, but an idea of something very, very real. And for me, at least, those are all connected to the greatness and the wonder and the mystery of God himself. That this physical world that we see has this inherent beauty and wonder because it is the creative expression of the ultimate mind, the mysterious mind beyond all things. So when I look at, for example, a Grand Canyon or a mountain, what do I see? Among other things, there is a sense of majesty and there's a sense of putting me in the right place of proportion. I am a very small thing next to a mountain.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting feeling. Yeah. Why, why, why do we have that? Like, where does that come from?
1: I don't know exactly where that comes from, other than the fact that understanding and experiencing the size differential between me and this majestic thing maybe is an echo of the great difference, the great qualitative difference between myself and God that His majesty and His wonder and His wisdom and His power are like that mountain, and I'm like this person standing next to it that you can barely even see. I think it's probably something like that, that when we experience the beauty of this natural world, we are experiencing that as pleasurable because the deepest part of us, made in the image of God and understanding some things intuitively about God, we get that. There is a majesty here that is not human, it's not limited to me, or even all humanity it goes far beyond that. And there's a part of me, there's a part of me that wants it.
0: I feel like it's tough because sometimes I feel kind of numb. to the, Like, you know, there's a song by a band that I like that says something along the lines of, like, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, but now I just, like, get a thousand pictures on my phone as I scroll throughout oh, my day or yeah. something. So it's kind of numbed the effect of seeing beauty because it's just so prevalent through Instagram or or whatever. But when I'm not numb to it, yeah. <laughs> there is something about seeing either things that are really big, like a mountain or even, you know, down in Brown County State Park overlooking the forest, especially during the fall with all the colors, or sometimes seeing pictures like, you know, the Hubble, new Hubble telescope images. All the color and the the movement of the galaxies that are just like specks and there's a sense of awe there. But then also in the really small things like looking at the intricate details of a flower or an insect or something like that, that both somehow evoke an emotion of like, wow, that is really good. And I think that that, to me, points to, okay, these are creative expressions of a creator God who is innately good and beautiful and creative. And so there's a way in which those things radiate, in my mind, the glory and majesty of God.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I'm glad you pointed out about seeing very small things because they're the other side of the scale, right? We see something incredibly small, and yet we see the beauty in that. We see the fineness of the details and how they all work together. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. And I think it reminds us again of our place within this vast scale of the universe, scaling both up and down with wonders.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'm just thinking about the unity and harmony, something like DNA. Yeah. You know, where it is all unified because it's one thing, but the complexity That works harmoniously together in order to create the form that DNA is different. Or did you see the article about the smallest animal based on scientific criteria that lives on the moon? Are those like micro bears things that they they think are probably were on the space ships that landed? Did you see that?
1: I did not. Micro Micro bears?
0: They're like tiny little, tiny little microbe, but they look like bears. And so they're called, you should Google it real fast. I think they're called microbears, but this is going to be an interesting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you're welcome. We're talking
1: about... Microbears on the moon. All right, I'm Googling it. Yeah. You see them? Um, I haven't seen pictures yet. On April 11th, 2019, the Israeli spacecraft Beresheet, I think I'm pronouncing that probably wrongly, crashed into the moon during a failed landing attempt. No. Now, its payload included a few thousand tardigrades. Also known as water bears? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Initial reports suggested they could have survived the crash landing.
0: Yeah, see if you can see some images of it.
1: Oh, yeah. Those are bizarre looking. Well, they're,
0: they're microscopic. The point of this, though, is that they, like, the article I read said that... Yeah, what, like, what's the point of this again? The, the point <laughs> is that the article I read classified them somehow as animals, but that they're so small. The intricacy of the detail of them... And their resilience that makes scientists think that they can live in outer space, Hmm. in in the vacuum of outer space. There's something magnificent about that and beautiful about that that is just intriguing, but (laughs) at most much more than that, just like fascinating because something like that exists.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um,
0: I'm sorry. Maybe a tangent. Absolutely a tangent.
1: That's all right. That's all right. (laughs) So anyway, where were we? Okay, so Aquinas, Radiance of the Form of the Essence, we've talked about that. Now, I do want to talk about, oh, by the way, we should also mention Psalm 19 talks about this idea. The heavens display the glory of God and the skies show his handiwork. And then it goes on to talk about the beauty of this world and especially the world above us that we see in the sky. And then it's interesting, that same psalm, first half talks about the wonders of God's creation. And then the second half of that goes right into talking about the law of the Lord or God's moral instruction.
0: Hmm.
1: It seems to tie those in together like both of those are an expression of who God is in different ways. That leads me to talking just very briefly about the three transcendentals. What's
0: that word mean?
1: So transcendental just means the things that go beyond. So if you remember in the very first podcast episode, we talked about, imagine if we had a terrarium or an aquarium that represented the entire physical universe. And the question is, is there anything outside this? Is there anything beyond that transcends the physical universe that we're in? And the theist would say, yes, God and all the things about God. Whereas the naturalist says, no, the physical cosmos is all that there is and never has been. So the idea of transcendence means something that is here, but it goes beyond. Or even in this room, you and I are in an office, maybe 15 by 20, right? Yeah. And yet there are things that transcend this. For example, rationality transcends this, because uh, even if we weren't here, there's still rationality within this world. And sunlight transcends this, because it's coming in that window right now. Uh, many things transcend this. The point is, just to define what we mean by transcendence, now, There are three transcendentals in classical philosophical thought. I'm going to be relying on Peter Kreft, who's a great professor of philosophy at Boston University. Fascinating. Find his lectures, you can listen to him, and he's much better than I am. A thousand times better. But anyway, he talks about the three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good transcends this world. There is a goodness that exists before and beyond creation itself. And also the true. There is a truth that transcends this world that we're in. So if you and I were not here, if humanity is here if humanity as a whole had never existed, there is still truth. And then lastly, the beautiful. So there are things that are beautiful that don't depend upon us or our judgments. They're beautiful in themselves. They transcend our judgments or even our world because they're part of who God is. So that's what I mean by the three transcendentals.
0: So you're defining transcendental as... They exist even without human needing to exist,
1: Yes, or even the universe, or even
0: the, oh, even the universe, okay. Yes. so the beautiful can exist even without the universe existing, mm-hmm. because of the value? I mean, I feel like those are very material things.
1: Yeah, okay. I see what you're getting at, and maybe we should say that beauty is a transcendental because it relies on things that are not part of this universe, like the mind of God. yeah. So that that's a good pushback on that. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking, well, we're limited by our senses. So I perceive beauty based on the, the physical expressions of that. So if there is no material expression of that, then that seems like that would be hard to exist.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Maybe uh, when we talk about the next part, that will flesh it out a little bit. And again, I'm relying on Peter Kreb for this distinction, which I think is very helpful, very fascinating. Three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. These are recognized all the way back from Plato as these things are what we are infinitely attracted to. We always want these things and we don't want just a bit of truth or a bit of beauty. We want all that we could experience, all that we could take in. So it's not like food. It's not like something here that we can be satiated with. We have an infinite inborn desire for these things, true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, he makes a distinction, Peter Krepp makes a distinction, between the order of being, how these things relate to each other, in the order of being, and the order of attraction. But they're all based on God and his ways. So the order of being is, first of all, God. God and his ways and his thoughts and his values are the ultimate expression of reality. They exist apart from this physical universe. If this physical universe stopped existing, or if it never had existed, Still, God and his ways are there. So he is the ultimate reality, the ultimate being. And then truth, then, is what corresponds to reality. So you have reality. You have probably different levels of reality, different facets of reality. A shadow or a dream is not as real as you created the shadow or the dream. You are not as real, in a sense, as God himself, because you are contingent upon him. But there there are real things The true is what corresponds to reality. So it's almost like it's that reality put into concepts and words. The good is the right response to reality. And that's mainly morality? It includes morality, but it goes beyond that, I think.
0: So it's like the right response to reality if something like family is more valuable than that chair? (laughs) So I should value my family. I should respond differently to my family than to my chair. Yes. Kind of thing. Okay.
1: Let me give you a, a couple examples of this. Okay.
0: Thanks. Because mine is not good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's actually not bad. If Christianity is true, you have God in his ways, and then you have the truth that flows out of that reality, including the ideas, for example, that lying is wrong. Okay. Right. So the good then is that I try to be an honest person because of that truth, that lying is wrong. Or if God is who he says he is in the Bible, and he is a being of ultimate love, then ultimately I should love other rational beings that I come in contact with above my own physical desires. So I should prefer to love my wife and do what's right for her rather than my own fleshly desires, even if I were in a position to, say, commit adultery or something like that. All right. So in that case, the truth is that my wife is infinitely more valuable than the momentary pleasure that that would bring me. The good is then realizing that in my decision-making. So I'm not going to put myself in positions where I'm going to do that or even, if possible, be tempted to do that too much. Hmm. And then, finally, the beautiful is simply the expression of these things within this universe. First, I put down the physical expression, but physical would maybe exclude the idea of music. Music is physical, right? But I think to make it clear, we'll just say beauty is the expression of that reality within our world that we experience.
0: So things aren't good or beautiful just because God says they are in this perspective. Things are good and beautiful because God's nature is true and good and beautiful and the fullest expression of reality. And so then I could see how truth corresponds with God and then Good corresponds also with what is true, which corresponds with God. And then beauty corresponds with what is good, which corresponds with what is true, which also co- corresponds with God. There's there's definitely a, a flow here that all kind of corresponds with how we think and understand God.
1: Yes. That's what I'm trying to get at. And that again, I'm basing this on Peter Kraft. This is an original. That's the idea, that the transcendentals are linked to each other and ultimately grounded in God, ultimately grounded in God
0: that is good because that gets at the heart of what we've been trying to do as we've explored different worldviews is that there's an internal coherence and this kind of shows because what is true is epistemology and what is what is real is metaphysics and then what is good and what is beautiful are value ethics so i mean it's
1: so yeah god in his ways would be ontology or metaphysics what is real yeah and then the true would be epistemology the good would be Probably you would regard that as value theory, and then the beautiful is one part of that. Yeah. If you're going to make that into different realms of philosophy, as we've been talking about. Yeah. Now, what's interesting here is that the order of attraction is different than the order of being. The order of being is God, and then the true, the good, and the beautiful. But the order of attraction for us, the way that we experience things is reversed. We experience the beautiful which should then point us towards the good, which should then point us towards the true, and then through that we see and experience God.
0: That's so fascinating.
1: Right. And I think he's right about this. Um, I've thought about this for a while. Uh, He's a lot smarter than me, so it took me a while to think through this, but I, I think he's right about that.
0: We can get to know God then through what is beautiful, and what is good. And what is true. And what is true. Right. Wow.
1: So the order of being is God and God's ways. And then the true, the good, and the beautiful. But the order of our attraction, the way that we normally experience things in, is the beautiful and then the good and then the true pointed to God. And that's the way I think it's supposed to work. So that's why when I see something very, very beautiful in nature especially, I see it as, and I experience it as beauty. But at the same time, there is a goodness to that. It's not just that I like the beauty. It just seems good and it seems right. It seems truthful that there is this beautiful thing that I'm experiencing that points beyond itself to the majesty of the one who made it. So something like that.
0: That, that, I mean, Aristotle seemed to be pretty spot on then in that sense that those things that are Beautiful do point to something beyond themselves. Yeah.
1: Did you mean Aristotle or Thomas?
0: Well, both. Okay. I guess. Yeah. I mean, Thomas is pointing that to God. Right. But Aristotle is also right in the sense that he, he recognizes that the beautiful thing points to something beyond itself. Gotcha. It radiates some other form. Thomas p- putting that in the nature of God, I think, is, is the, the helpful critique there. Okay, Or expansion.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, we could develop this more, and maybe we will, but I want to talk about the alternative here from a naturalistic perspective because I think it highlights the beauty and the meaning of what we've just talked about, but it also shows into sharp relief the worldview that you get with naturalism versus the worldview that you get with Christianity.
0: So, yeah, why don't you help unpack than kind of how the uh, naturalist perspective would understand beauty.
1: All right. Most of them don't touch it. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Because it's a difficult concept, even in the best of terms, but especially once you eliminate God and transcendence, really, you have a difficult time accounting for beauty. The standard way, then, that you have to default to, if you believe, as a naturalist does, that there is nothing that transcends this physical universe, that we are here pretty much as an accidental collocations of atoms, as Bertrand Russell put it, that we are here solely by unguided natural selection. That's, that's how we are shaped, including our mind, therefore our sense of beauty. Then ultimately what happens is the only theory of aesthetics that you have is that you value some things because you are shaped by natural selection alone to value those things. That's the only game in town.
0: So how would natural selection shape people's values?
1: Especially beauty? Yeah. Okay, so let's take this in twofold. One, why do we find beautiful people attractive? And then secondly, why do we find natural beauty attractive? I think the beautiful people one we can understand. The argument here that the naturalist makes is that beauty is a visible expression of the reproductive health of that person. Okay. So when I see someone beautiful, it's not that I am valuing them simply because they might reproduce more of my genes. It's not like that. But rather, my mind has been shaped by generation and generation, thousands of generations, to value certain traits that my ancestors found increased fertility and evolutionary fitness, therefore. So, for example, a woman who has long, luxurious hair Well, at least in ancient times, or previous generations, many times past, that was a sign of good health, and you'd want a woman who had good health. What we associate with youthfulness, like clear skin, lack of wrinkles, a firm body, well, obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, if you're looking at, say, a 20-year-old woman versus a 70-year-old woman, the 20-year-old woman has those characteristics and the 70-year-old woman doesn't. And only the 20-year-old woman is actually going to be able to bear you children. So your mind has been shaped to value certain characteristics, even in men. Okay, I'm a man. I can look at another man and view him as attractive because he has certain masculine characteristics that really show his evolutionary fitness. Even though I have no desire, obviously, to mate with him and could his children with him anyway, it's just this idea there are certain especially feminine characteristics that show high levels of estrogen and reproductive fitness in youth and then masculine characteristics that show high levels of testosterone and strength.
0: So strength for protection as well and things that can help. So that's why women might find men of certain physical physiques more attractive is because over time they've been conditioned to see not just that they can help them have children, but that they can protect them and Different competitive situations or something.
1: Exactly. Okay. So they can get more resources and they can protect.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Now, undergirding all this is not some plan of God. It's simply the expression of your genes to want to reproduce. So the selfish gene, as Richard Dawkins calls it and Stephen Pinker set up. The selfish gene within you wants to reproduce and it will choose things, value things based upon that desire alone. Now, I said most naturalists don't really touch the concept of beauty. One who does is Steven Pinker. So we've quoted him before. He's a professor of psychology right now, but he's done most of his more famous work in the field of science, popular science and evolutionary theory as an evolutionary biologist. So he's trying to interpret the human mind based upon natural selection alone. And he does this probably in a more convincing and certainly more thorough way than any other naturalist I've seen. He wrote a book called How the Mind Works. It's one of the few that I've seen, actually the only one I've seen from a naturalist, that delves into the idea of how natural selection would have selected for what we find beautiful. For example, this part doesn't necessarily deal with beauty, but human valuing. You have a baby now, don't you? We do, yeah. I bet you think you love that baby.
0: Actually, he's 10 months old.
1: 10 months old. Well, still a baby. So I bet you think that you love him.
0: I, I'm pretty sure I
1: love him. Okay, maybe. <laughs> Stephen Picker writes, We now understand why many animals, including humans, love their children, parents, and grandparents. These individuals share the same genes, and the genes are manipulating the meat puppets, that you, to protect the genes. When a mother watching her son enter surgery wishes she could take his place, it's not the species or the group or her body that wants her to have this most unselfish emotion. It is her selfish genes. So the reason that you love your child is because he shares your genes and you are wired by your selfish genes to want to protect that process by which he can pass it down to the
0: generation. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. And that also comes then in, in romantic love. You would think that maybe you would view that woman and as you would have some choice in loving her because of their internal worth, right? Yeah. But Stephen Pinker writes that if, if your choice was purely rational... Then the object of your desire could predict that, by the law of averages, someone better would come around sooner or later, and that you would dump them like a hot potato. But it's clear that your choice is partly—I'm going to read this again because I want to get the quote. So he says that if your choice were purely rational, then, quote, Then the object of your desire could predict that, by the law of averages, someone better would come around sooner or later, and that you would dump them like a hot potato. But if it's clear that your choice is partly involuntary, partly directed to that unique individual, as opposed to that individual's list of qualities, that gives your partner some assurance that you're committed. So basically what he's saying is you don't really have a choice in choosing to love the woman that you love. It's also this expression, and it's mostly involuntary, and that by itself, it kind of gives her and, and you the assurance that it will stick.
0: So it's deterministic based on my biology.
1: Yeah, he's pretty deterministic because he's a very consistent naturalist.
0: That's so interesting. But what's he saying then that by the law of averages, sooner or later as my wife and I grow older, there is going to be a younger woman who is more fit to, to bear children Yes. than my wife will be. But... He's saying that the reason I don't drop her like a hot potato and take up this other woman is why?
1: Well, partly because it's not a voluntary choice that you love and aren't committed to your wife. It's not a rational choice. It's subconscious. It's working on the gene level instead of the intellectual but how and does the, value level.
0: But how does the gene level help in that situation if I want to, what's the right word, propagate my genetics?
1: I think he would say that it does so by creating strong human bonds that consistently raise children and grandchildren over generations.
0: Okay, so, so it's, more, it's more about trying to help continue the evolutionary fitness of my family because my son now has my genes and he still needs the family dynamics in order to grow an, uh, an evolutionarily fit human who's continuing to spread the genes. Yes. Okay, I mean, that's an argument for sure. It is. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's an argument. I think probably evolutionary theory about why we value beautiful people is stronger than the natural part. Um, But again, notice the difference here. You are choosing someone because involuntarily your genes have latched onto that person as a person most likely at this stage of your life to be able to produce a lot of offspring. That's very different than the human idea that when we see someone, we have a real choice in that, and we value them for things beyond just the reproductive fitness.
0: Yeah, it's kind of it's. Kind of, his perspective is a little cynical.
1: It is, and Am he's I,
0: married, isn't he? At least he was. I think I he's have, married.
1: I have no idea. No, okay. But I know, as a parent of an adopted child, a lot of this rings false.
0: Ah, uh, can you say more?
1: Well, yeah. Obviously, we have chosen to devote the incredible amount of resources it takes to raising a child, uh, two biological children and one adopted child. And we did that willingly, as almost all adopted parents do. So <laughs> that idea of adoption and the altruism of adoption, altru- altruism in general, is very difficult to explain on evolutionary terms alone. Yeah, that's interesting. But I don't want to digress on that.
0: Can, can I just say props to him for using meat puppet, though? That's just been in my mind. <laughs> uh he, that's right right he said meat puppet yeah he called me a meat puppet yes he did in his academic work that's what 600 700 pages long
1: <laughs> yes and in fact i think richard dawkins expressed it best i think it was him who said this verse that your body is just your genes way of creating more genes huh so you are a meat puppet i like that yeah like the puppet that. master is your genes
0: Gotcha. At first I was thinking the puppet master, does that point to a puppeteer, like a god, but he's, he's not saying that. He's just no. saying that I am a passive, responsive.
1: I don't know if he put a passive, responsive, but yeah, the idea is basically your body, including the choices you make, are being puppeteered. Is that the right word? Yeah, I think so. By your, by your genes. That's so interesting. Your genes desire what, for reproduction specifically.
0: What a fascinating... You know what the thing is, though, I don't mean to digress, but there's certainly shades of truth to wanting to continue to love our families. And some of that is certainly grounded in genes and in biology and that sort of thing that, yeah, I want to protect my family because they are family and part of family is not just a societal bond, but a genetic bond. So I I could certainly see shades of truth to their their credit, that there is probably something working at the genetic level for this.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you point that out. Because I think you're probably right. There are some parts of this that are true, or they're true to a certain degree. And remember, for a Christian theist like you and I, we are able to fit that into our understanding of reality quite well. We would just say, this is how God used part of the human process of evolution as he guided it along. So I can be a six-day creationist, or I can be a theistic evolutionist, someone who believes God used that process. Either way, I'm still a theist, right? Yeah. Philosophically, I'm in the same camp. But if I'm an atheist, if I'm a naturalist, I don't have that option. This yeah. is natural selection, unguided natural selection, is the only game in town for discerning how we became who we are and why we value the things that we do. Interesting. Interesting. All right. One other thing, Stephen Pinker talks about it again. Full props to him for talking about this from his perspective when most naturalists just kind of punt here. And that is why we value natural beauty, all right? And some of this is going to apply to art as well. And basically, it's the same mechanism, just working in a different way. So the same mechanism is that your genes want to reproduce themselves and continue their reproduction on through many generations, right? That is the mechanism. The way it works for natural beauty is a little bit different than the beauty of a potential spouse or mate, but it's the same naturalistic explanation. So he devotes several pages to this. He says that for most of human history, humans evolved on the African savanna. And that this type of environment then becomes associated with what we desire because it gave evolutionary advantages to our ancestors. In other words, the people who formed what we value today through those many, many generations. What advantages are those? Well, you have wide vistas, right? So you can see potential predators coming at you, and you can see prey. And
0: So we would now view landscapes as something kind of innately beautiful? Exactly.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, so wide open areas. And then he would talk about why we value animals, and why we find animals beautiful, because we eat them. Or sometimes we're eaten by them. But either way, we have to pay attention to them. And that's the idea, that we have to pay attention to these things, therefore they're kind of hardwired into our mind that this is something... We want to look at. And what about flowers? All right, we all find flowers beautiful, right? Or most people do. And again, it's a very naturalistic explanation. Well, you have to remember that in the underbrush, different plants have different properties. Some could kill you, some would heal you, some would feed you. And they're all going to be green except for the flowers. That's how you're going to distinguish them at least first glance. Therefore, the more you paid attention to flowers, the more likely you were to succeed in that environment and pass on your genes.
0: So it's very utilitarian. Exactly. Which is interesting because then it's no longer in the realm of beauty. It's mostly just, oh, well, you had to pay attention to this for evolutionary fitness. Yes. Okay. Now, what about something like um, a sunset or the sky?
1: Yeah, he gives no explanation at all for that.
0: I wonder if he would say something like meteors or, or, or something like that.
1: That would. I'm sorry. He does give an explanation for that. I remember now. He argued that dramatic shifts in weather or cosmological events signaled something that we had to respond to. And the more we paid attention to those things, the more likely we were to survive and therefore pass on our gene. Like... And then he also has a little bit about why we value mystery and beauty. So one of the things that most humans desire or find beautiful is a winding path, right? Or a brook that goes into a mountain or rolling hills that we can't see. And he would say that we value those things because our evolutionary ancestors, the ones that had this sense of seeking out the unknown, had this evolutionary advantage then.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Now, a couple of things about this. First of all, this is a just-so story. And what I mean by that, you're making up an explanation for something that you could in no wise test or prove. In fact, he's, he was called out by this, by other people of his same camp, saying, there's no way we can know how millions of years ago individuals or groups lived on the savannah, what they valued, what they chose, what they did. There's no scientific way to test this. He quotes some study saying that children... Preferred savannas above other types of environments that they wanted to travel to. But he gives no citation for that at all. So there's no way to test that hypothesis. In any case, he, right after that, he concedes that adults like mountains and woodlands just as much. He says, well, maybe we experience those more. So again, he's just given these suppositions on why these things might be. But I think from your own experience, I mean, think of the people you know. If you ask them, where do you want to spend a two-week vacation? What percentage of them are going to say on a savannah?
0: I feel like it's like, it's like, would you prefer, yeah, mountains or the
1: beach? <laughs> right. Or if gotta, if savannah, yeah, yeah. A woodland lake, a mountain, a beach.
0: I mean, it's going to be split. That's the that's the interesting thing.
1: Right, but I don't think most people are going to choose savannah. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. I'm not oh. going to. I, I would choose the mountains. Same. Yeah. More My wife. Of a
0: mountain guy than a beach guy. Yeah.
1: My wife would choose the beach. And again, even the realms he talks about, we prefer wide open vistas so that we can see predators. And yet, just a few pages later, we prefer places that are unknown to us, like rolling hills that we can explore.
0: Yeah, but what about the predators? Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, there's something hiding behind that tree.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a nice experiment to play with in your mind. But there's no way that you could offer any kind of definitive proof. But even if you could, even if you could prove, or even if you had reasons to believe that, what you have then is an understanding of beauty that is entirely utilitarian, and utilitarian in the most narrow sense of being able to pass on our genes.
0: Yeah, which doesn't resonate so much, so well with me. I
1: don't think many people. I mean, to tell someone... That they value sunsets because our great ancestors took notice of cosmological events and therefore they were more fit or they value flowers. Not because of their inherent beauty, but because maybe some ancestors a few thousand generations ago paid attention to flowers and therefore they increased their evolutionary fitness. Or even broader, that you love your spouse. (laughs) For evolutionary reasons only, that you love your child <laughs> yeah, only because wow. you're a meat puppet being manipulated by your genes to pass on your genes more fully.
0: I was just thinking that's not a very romantic thing to say to your spouse.
1: No, I wouldn't I wouldn't go there for Valentine's Day is coming up. Probably honey, don't. Honey,
0: why do you love me? Well, <laughs> because.
1: <laughs> but the reason I want to highlight this, and again, I give full props to Steven Pinker for actually putting it down on paper, even though I think he's fundamentally wrong. He does what most naturalists don't. But I think by doing so, he highlights the beauty of the Christian understanding of beauty. Though we may not understand how it works exactly, even though I certainly cannot explain it as well as it could be explained, I think we get that the things we experience around us that are beautiful, are beautiful objectively, They have beauty in themselves, not just because in some way they increased my reproductive fitness, but because they're beautiful things. They're beautiful things because beauty is a real thing that transcends my life and my desires, my genes' desires. It's an expression somehow, in some way, of the wonder and the grandeur and the majesty of God who made all things, including those things that we find especially beautiful. So that's the difference. And that's why, to me, even if I had a thousand reasons for doubting God's existence, and even if naturalism or atheism was compelling on other grounds, I don't think I could get there, because it doesn't ring true to the deepest parts of who I am.
0: Yeah. You see something beautiful, and you know in your soul that there is something innately beautiful about that. Yeah. And not just utilitarian.
1: Yeah. And yes, And I'm not just disregarding facts for desire because, like I said, I don't think you can establish the naturalistic viewpoint at all. There's no proof or evidence. You can't run science experiments to prove most of these assertions. I'm not rejecting facts for desire. I am looking at two different ways of understanding beauty within this world, neither of which can really be proven. And i am saying one of those is lovely, meaningful, moving, and the other is shallow and reductionist. And I'm going to choose the one that is beautiful, the one that gives beauty meaning. So that's where I am.
0: That's good. That's really good.
1: Well, any other thoughts or questions? My my mind is drained.
0: I don't think so. I think this was really good and helpful, so thank you.
1: Yeah, I think sometime we'll come back to the idea of the three transcendental we've talked about today.
0: Aristotelian philosophy or Platonic philosophy. Right. Probably get some more into St. Thomas.
1: Yeah. But for now, I would just say enjoy the beauty of the world around you, whether it's in a person's face, a person's action, whether it's in the music that you hear or the sunset you experience. Enjoy them. Enjoy God in them and enjoy them in God. That's all.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, click follow or subscribe depending on your platform. Check the notification bell so you're up to date with new episodes and leave us a review. Until next time.